Mike Picknett, I'm the uh, current Lifeboat Operations Manager at Red Car Lifeboat Station on the North East Coast in Yorkshire. I was at my uh, granddad's house, the Maroons went off and he took me across to the seafront and we watched the Oakley lifeboat as it was then launch on a, on a service call to rescue some guys from a, from a ship. Uh, I think I was, well I, would, I know the date because it was 1974 so I was six and that sort of sticks as a really vivid memory, young memory um, as six years old. And then at nine years old, the coxswain then was a guy called David Buckworth. Um, his nickname was Barney. He was a friend of my father's and he uh, had suggested that at nine years old, I was old enough to go to the station and start with the brasso and making tea and sweeping the floor and all of the other things that you do, if you want to call it as an apprentice, a very young apprentice. Um, and of course, then you were, it was it was quite normal for, for the young, uh, for children of the, of the crew to be around the station. My father wasn't a lifeboat man at all. Not sure why it skipped that generation, but it did. Um, but yeah, so at nine years old, I, I was I went to the station and, and started um, learning the trade. That kind of imprints in your DNA the, that that whole ethos about what it, what it means to be part of the RLI and how proud you were when I was given my first blue RLI Gansey to wear. And I was allowed to wear one. You know, you, I was given it until when you come down on a Sunday to Wednesday. We want you to wear this, and you, you know those those things evoke a great sense of of pride to be part of that team, and then to continue that on. My family are a are a, a, a long established fishing family in Redcar, um, and, and we've had a look at the family tree back to about seventeen forty. But from the from the first time that a lifeboat came to Redcar in eighteen oh two. You know, predating the the RLI, my family were were all fishermen then, and so they were all uh, co-opted and part of uh, the group of people who would take the lifeboat out if it was required. Um, so, you know that that from my great great grandfather and right the way down in the direct line to me, but also uh, their brothers and their nephews. There was a a significant number of of my family that were part of lifeboat crews. Um, and, and even you know, in 1901, uh, there was a, an incident with the, uh, the the tribe to rescue the crew of a, a big trawler called the Honoria. And my uh, my great uncle Thomas, uh, who was uh, the coxswain of the lifeboat, then um, they didn't take the lifeboat to sea. Uh, I, I surmise because um, they were already either at sea in their boat or uh, they lent the time to to arrange that. Uh, when they were launching lifeboat by horses, it, it wasn't done like it is now. And in ten minutes, it was a, a bit of a longer process. But they put to sea to rescue the the crew of the Honoria, and uh, there was four of them in the boat, and three of them drowned. So um, my great uncle uh, Thomas Hood, he was drowned, and his uh, two nephews John and uh, Edmund were also drowned. So they, those three names are on the uh, are on the lifeboat memorial at Pool, which is it's a, it's proud that. You know, you feel sort of proud that your family have have been part of that service for so long. I knew about the story before that. Our, you know, they created the memorial in Pool, and there is a in the in the cemetery at Redcar. There's a um, a small memorial, a, a, an anchor, and a gravestone that bears the names and the brief details of 
if they're drowning in 1901. But when the Allied created the memorial, then I was aware that the names were going to be on there. Um, and at the opening of that, um, I was invited to attend. Um, and of course, you know, you see lots and lots of people who've made that sacrifice uh, with the RLI. Um, but then to see three surnames the same, all in the same year, um, it, you know, you, you realise that thankfully now in the modern times, um, you know, far less likely that, that we're going to have to uh, go through that kind of disaster. Um, but it does remind you that it's a possibility and that that's, you know, in the spirit of the RLI, people are prepared. I guess ultimately to, you know, the, the old saying goes, we have to go out, but we don't necessarily have to come back. When I first joined the crew in 1985, we had an all-weather boat, an old um, Oakley class, the Sir James Knott. Uh, so I started as a crew member on that and the station D class. Uh, as it was then, the young young guys get thrown into the D class and, the, and, and you get an opportunity to be on the, the all-weather boat. But shortly after that, the RLI decided to change the, the station from all-weather to ILB only. So in 86, uh, the Oakley was withdrawn and we were allocated an Atlantic lifeboat, which is probably one of the best things that happened to the station um, on reflection. Within a couple of years, I was a helm on the D and the Atlantic. Uh, so I was a helm on both boats at 19. I also uh, volunteered to be uh, to considered for the Aralyze Flood Rescue Team. And I was accepted onto the, to the team with another guy from, from the station. So that was a, an interesting uh, challenge in terms of the, the normal boat handling that you're used to in the, in, in the open sea is, is one thing. And that, you know, as, as everybody knows, it's handled boats at sea when, when the conditions are a, are a challenge, then, you know, it calls for, a, for a, a certain set of skills in terms of boat handling. But flood rescue and swift water rescue is a completely different animal altogether. Um, the boat handling is is different. The conditions are different, and it's a bit, little bit less forgiving. So if you if you um, the room and margin for error is far less, and in the flood environment, if you if you get things wrong, there isn't really anywhere to go. Um, you're only going to go with the flows this year, and, and you'll just need to be really lucky that there's nothing downstream of where you are that's going to cause you a huge problem. And in the sea environment, all lifeboat crew. Uh, know intimately the area in which they operate, like the back of their hands. In the flood environment, you will never know the environment that you are responded to, because unless you're really lucky and you're responding to a town that you're intimately uh, aware of, um, you'll operate off a, off a normal street map. So you'll and you'll be able to see, of course, the roads and, and where junctions, etc. But what you don't know is what's underneath that that flood water itself. So you don't know whether or not. There's a there's a bench or there's a parked car or there's a fence or a uh, a, a post box um, or any of the other uh, hazards that will damage the boat or or take a blade off your propeller or worse um, and you, you're just not aware of them and so you you're having to try and um, look look at that uh, geography that's in front of you look at the water flow and try and anticipate where you, where that is telling your obstructions might be. Uh, and obviously, you know, all of us have been down lots of high streets and you kind of know that most of the furniture is on the on the sides of the road where the pavement is and you want to try and be in the middle if you can. But it doesn't always uh, ring true. So, and I've, I can remember vividly that, um, that in two, the Cockermouth floods in 2009, um, I was in 
one of the first boats that went into the water with a task in to look at rescuing a family out of a house that was potentially going to collapse. Um, and on the first approach to try and get to a window where we could get the family out, uh, all of a sudden the engine stopped dead. Uh, and we started to rattle down the high street at about 15 or 16 knots of the floor. Fortunately for us, um, we uh, we drifted into the Christmas tree that was in the centre of the high street in Cockermouth. And we managed to grab hold of it um, and hold the boat in the in the sort of lee behind the Christmas tree, we lifted the engine up, and it was completely wound up with balls of wool that had come out of a shop. The shop window had broken with a floodwater wool shop, and thousands of balls of wool had, had come out of the, the shop, and we ended up with all that around the propeller. So we cut all that off, uh, got the engine restarted, no problem, and then we were able to then have another look at the you know where we needed to be. We managed to get in to a little side street and, and get this family and their dog um, out of the house and, and and drop them to one of the rendezvous points that we'd been given to safety. But that's a, an example of in the flood environment how unforeseen risks you can't you know you can't plan for that. It's a it's a live environment that you have to try and assess and and do what you can to to stay away from it. The risk, of course, is um, if you if you get it wrong, if you end up in the water, or if you end up um, as we were disabled by uh, having a load of wool around the propeller, then you you're going with the flow, and and your anchor is potentially not going to be very effective on a on a tarmac road. And if you're then drifting towards a bridge or other strainers such as fences, etc., then you can really be in, in serious trouble. So a completely different environment. And I've said it before to other people, it's probably the riskiest thing I've ever done in a D-class, even though I've had I had 35 years in D-classes at sea. Um, the flood environment was, the live flood environment, not the training environment, was far more risky, far more risky. There's this balance that I think all lifeboat crew have between uh, triumph and tragedy. And so when lifeboats are called out, it's usually, usually, not always, but it's usually because somebody's got themselves into a situation they can't get out of. So, and when the crew, when the boat's launched and they go and, and they're successful with that job, then there's an element of triumph in terms of, uh, you know, a general word, but an element of triumph for the crew who feel as though they've, they've, They've got the best kit, the best training, the best boat. They've utilised that and they've, and they've achieved an out, a positive outcome or a successful outcome. So for them, and quite rightly, that's a successful thing and it's a, and it's a triumph. And it, and it pays testament to, you know, the whole, uh, the whole thing around volunteering um, and training and then being able to put that into practice positively and use it. But we do know that some of those jobs, it's not, possible to save everybody and sometimes uh, the with the best of intention or the, the, the best endeavor lives are lost there's no uh, getting away from that it's part of uh, being being in the in the lifeboat service um, and that's where the tragedy element is so for us it, it, it can be a successful job that's done well and executed well so for us it's a if you know we use that word trial but for the other person uh, even if they're, you know, if they're rescued successfully, it's still a tragedy. They've had a bad day somewhere along the line. They've lost their boat or they've damaged their boat and they've needed to be rescued. Or worst case, they've lost their life. And for that family, it's an absolute tragedy. 
and that there's a balance uh, in all of that 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 can be uh, difficult to wrestle with. What was interesting was when I started to listen to these podcasts, and I came across episode nine, which was uh, Neem Fitzpatrick's uh, episode. And it's the first time I've heard it from the point of view of a, a family whose uh, loved one had uh, unfortunately been killed and had been recovered by the RLI. And to listen to their view or her view on what that meant and how it made such a positive difference to them in tragic circumstances uh, to understand how that person had been recovered and, and looked after and and treat you know with dignity you know uh, in the circumstances in which you're recovering a person uh, I found really really powerful and really positive because what it it tells you that even though on those jobs there is something positive that you are achieving because it's a very negative day and it's a negative uh, act that you uh, that you're carrying out but to hear her describe it from the family's perspective meant that. Uh, I was, you, it kind of was a final piece in the jigsaw puzzle. It, after 35 years of doing it, to suddenly realise that actually um, you're doing something very, very good for that family because you can't change the circumstances in which you know that the person was in. But what you can do is create a positive, a, a, the most positive outcome you can for the family when you've, you know, when you've had to recover the body of one of their loved ones. And so... It, I found it to be extremely powerful, and and I, um, after listening to it, I, on our crew um, WhatsApp group, I posted uh, on there and said that I wanted everybody to listen to it because I wanted everybody to be able to take something positive from the next time we had to do that that task, um, and sadly we have had to do that task since that podcast um, twice, and so um, you know that. Every day is a school day, and no matter how many years you do this, uh, or you've been involved in, in this kind of work, every now and again a little gem comes along. Uh, my son Luke, when uh, when he was young again, the, the same, similar age to me, became interested because I was at the station such a lot. Um, he he started to to come to the lifeboat station with me on a Sunday. Um, and he started to get involved with exactly almost a mirror of what I'd done. He joined the crew at 17. He's, he's 27 now, so he's 10 years uh, into his lifeboat career. So I do joke with him that the ink on his um, application form is almost dry after 10, 10 years. But um, he's he's recently uh, qualified as a helm uh, on the station board. And it's a it's a bittersweet thing, really, because if we're both in the house when we get a, a if the boat gets a shout, we're both in the house. If I'm not the duty launching authority, because you know we take it, we have a rotor. Um, he he'll shoot out the door with his, when his pager goes off, and I'll I'll go down a little bit later on. Um, but it, it is a, a bittersweet because I still part of me still wants to go in the boat and do that side of it because I don't think that would ever leave you. But of course, I don't do that now. I have a different role, and so now I have to stand and watch the the boat go to sea with him in it, which on some days makes me quite jealous because I'd quite like to do that. But on other days, if the weather's not too good or if I know the job's not going to be a good job, there's a little bit of that, um, a little bit of that uh, 
mixed emotions around watching your son go and, and, and do something that might be a little bit a little bit difficult. Um, but yeah, there's, there's still, you know, I think back to when I was 27 and I didn't, I was never worried about going out in the boat then, so I don't suppose he is. And you've got to sort of wrestle with that whole, that whole, uh, you know, let him get on with it and, and try not to be whispering too many things in his ear about what he should and shouldn't be doing. <laughs> Hello, this is Louise Minchin. You've been listening to the RNLI's 200 Voices Collection. To hear more remarkable stories, head to rnli.org slash 200 Voices or subscribe to RNLI wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening. Two Hundred Voices is an adventurous audio limited production for the RNLI.